I would imagine many of us have a memory of something we wanted as a child, but our parents could not or would not give it to us. For me, it was a pair of Ken Griffey Jr. tennis shoes. They were Seattle Mariners colors. They had his number 24 on them. Of course, I was not privy to the behind-the-scenes discussions my parents surely had about whether or not to purchase these very expensive shoes for their elementary-age son, who would probably outgrow them very quickly. I'm sure the deliberations were long and heated. I've never seen the notebook containing the list of pros and cons, but I'm sure it existed. Nevertheless, after much debate, they broke the news to me that I would not, in fact, be receiving said shoes. As you can tell, I'm, I'm certainly not bitter about it anymore. I mention that because coveting may be one of the most obvious markers of original sin in young children. Parents have to teach their children how to share. It, it's not something that comes natural. Of course, as we get older, our coveting becomes less blatant, more sophisticated. So we need to search our hearts as we listen to the 10th commandment. Here's what it says. You can read it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, anytime you're trying to define something, it, it can often be just as helpful to define what it is not. And one thing we need to be clear about is that coveting is not the same as simply desiring. Buddhism teaches that we need to reach a state in which we no longer have desires. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches that our desires need to be moderated and steered toward God's glory and the good of others. There are many desires, in fact, that are natural and good. For example, think about someone who's not yet married. Before I married my wife, I wanted to be her husband. Was that a sinful desire? Of course not. What would be sinful is if I desired someone else's wife, or if I desired someone else, although I already have a wife. That's why it's important to pay attention to the actual wording of the 10th commandment. It does not only say, you shall not covet, period. It's more specific. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or anything that is your neighbor's. So there's nothing inherently sinful about desiring a house or a spouse. What makes it sinful is desiring something that God has already given to someone else. Coveting is sinful desire. So an important question that we need to answer is, what is the difference between godly desires or even neutral desires and sinful coveting? I want to offer two suggestions for how we can tell the difference between the two. First, coveting is desiring to obtain something by breaking God's law. For example, take the phrase, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. God has entrusted my neighbor's house to him, not to me. There's nothing sinful about me desiring a house in which to live, a place in which to have shelter for my family. That's a good desire. What would make it sinful, what would make it coveting, is if I sought to get a house by ungodly means. It would be sinful for me to want to take my neighbor's house from him. That would, of course, be a violation of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And it would be sinful for me to want to take my neighbor's wife from him. That would be a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That's the difference between a godly desire 
and sinful coveting. To covet is to desire something at the expense of God's law. Second, coveting is desiring that my neighbor did not have something. Again, if I want my neighbor's house or my neighbor's wife, I'm fundamentally desiring that he not have them. To covet is not simply to wish that I had something, but also to wish that my neighbor did not have it. Here's how the Westminster Catechism puts it. It asks the question, what are the sins forbidden by the 10th commandment? Answer, the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envy, and grieving at the good of our neighbor. So to covet is to be discontent with my own estate, with what God has seen fit to give me. It fundamentally involves a lack of confidence and trust in God's wisdom and justice and goodness. And coveting is also, in the words of the Catechism, envy and grieving at the good of our neighbor. When you put it in those terms, it's easier to see how incredibly unloving covetousness is. It means that I grieve when something good happens to my neighbor. And this is not only about possessions, it's also about circumstances. So imagine you know someone who experiences something that makes them rejoice, that makes them happy. Maybe it's that they get engaged or they find out they're going to be parents or grandparents. Maybe it's a new job or a job promotion. There's nothing inherently sinful about wanting to get married, wanting to have children or grandchildren, wanting a certain job or a promotion, but you know you've crossed the line into coveting when you cannot be happy for someone else because that good thing happened to them and not to you. Romans 12:15 says, "Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep." Coveting is essentially doing the opposite of that. It is rejoicing when someone else weeps or weeping when someone else rejoices. Coveting is when I'm pleased because of the misfortune of my neighbor or I'm grieved at the blessings of my neighbor. And of course, not only is covetousness unloving to others, it's also rebellious toward God. When we covet, we essentially say to God, you have not provided adequately. You have made a mistake in the way that you have dispersed your blessings. The remedy for covetousness then is contentment. Now that does not mean that contentment is easy. It is something that requires a great deal of work. Charles Spurgeon once told his congregation that covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. You have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough. So you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardeners care. Now contentment is one of the flowers of heaven, and if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in it. So covetousness, Spurgeon says, is like a weed that grows all on its own. We don't have to work to cultivate it. We don't have to sow covetousness in our hearts. It's just there. It is indigenous to our nature as sinners. But contentment 
is like a flower that has to be cultivated. You have to plant it. You have to fertilize it. You have to weed around it by God's grace. And Spurgeon draws this idea from what Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Here's Spurgeon again. He says, Paul says, I've learned to be content, as if to say he did not know how at one time. It cost him some pains to attain to the mystery of that great truth. No doubt he sometimes thought he had learned and then broke down. Frequently he found that it was not easy learning this task, and when at last he had attained to it and could say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, he was an old gray-headed man upon the borders of the grave. In other words, Paul did not learn contentment overnight, nor did he learn it easily. Contentment was not a weed that sprang up spontaneously. It was a flower that had to be cultivated for years by God's grace. The same is true for us. We have to do the hard work of uprooting covetousness and of cultivating contentment over and over for the rest of our lives. How do we do that? How do we uproot covetousness? How do we cultivate contentment? We could say many things here, but I want to offer two practical suggestions. First, if you want to uproot covetousness and cultivate contentment, you need to meditate on the truth of God's providence. Providence is simply a way of saying that God sustains and governs everything He has created and that He does so in absolute wisdom. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Something as seemingly random as the tossing of dice. God decides it every single time. He never sits it out. He never says, I have bigger matters to worry about. I can't bother with these dice when I have galaxies to keep spinning. Everything in the universe, every ray of light, every molecule, every electron, every multiplication of every cell, He governs it all. Without the truth of God's meticulous providence, I have every reason to be discontent, every reason to covet. Because if God is not governing all things, well, maybe He really wants me to have better circumstances. Maybe He wants me to have that possession that belongs to my neighbor, but He's unable to give it to me. When I meditate on God's providence, however, I'm reminded in the words of the hymn, all I have needed thy hand hath provided. The circumstances of our lives are not random. They are ordered by a Father who is supremely wise and good, who governs even the smallest details. Here's how Spurgeon put that truth. He said, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. He also said to his congregation, you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Contentment does not come from getting more. It comes from being satisfied in what God has given to me and in all that God is for me. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is God's remedy for covetousness, his promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. 
So we can uproot covetousness and we can cultivate contentment by meditating on and trusting in his providence, by believing that he is in control and that he will supply all that he deems necessary. The second way we can uproot covetousness and cultivate contentment is by forsaking complacency. It's dangerously easy to get those two confused, contentment and complacency. Uprooting covetousness is not the same thing as resolving myself to my present circumstances forever and ever. And contentment does not mean that I have to say, well, this is the way God has ordered things. There's nothing I can do about it. We certainly need to believe deeply in the truth of God's powerful, wise providence in all things. But we also need to recognize the responsibility he has given us. Again, not all desires are sinful. If a person finds themselves in unpleasant circumstances, not to mention unjust or harmful circumstances, it simply won't do for us to tell them, be content. It's possible to strive for contentment while striving equally to improve or even change our circumstances, especially if those circumstances are sinful or unjust. Again, Spurgeon's so helpful here, knowing that they were both rich and poor people in his congregation. This is what he said to poor Christians. He said, I beseech you in your humble sphere, cultivate contentment. Be not idle. Seek, if you can, by superior skill steady perseverance and temperate thriftiness to raise your position, but at the same time, be contented. And where God has placed you, strive to adorn that position. Be thankful to him and bless his name. So yes, cultivate contentment where God has placed you. But it is a good thing to seek, if you can, to raise your position. The key is that you make that pursuit not through ungodly means, and not with a heart that is bitter toward the good that your neighbor has, but that you seek it by superior skill, steady perseverance, and temperate thriftiness. We could apply those same ideas to many other circumstances besides poverty or wealth, but I want to leave you with this encouragement, that what we believe and what we think is always upstream of what we do. That's one reason the Tenth Commandment is so important. If we fail at this point, we're very likely to falter in other ways. So it's crucial that we fill our minds and hearts with truth about God's goodness and wisdom and justice in order to cultivate contentment and uproot covetousness. At the same time, we have to live according to that truth. You can believe all the right things. You can have the truest view of God's providence, but still fail to be content. That's why the image of uprooting and cultivating is so helpful. If you want a healthy garden, you can't expect to work just once. You're going to have to plant and water and fertilize and weed, and you're going to have to do those things again and again. It's not a one-time decision where you say, I would like a harvest. It is a commitment to do all the little things that ultimately result in a harvest. There's something both comforting and humbling about knowing that if the Lord allows us another 5 or 10 or 20 or 80 years, we will be wrestling for contentment until He returns or calls us home. One thing I can assure you of is that it will be worth it. After speaking to the poor believers and rich believers and suffering believers in his congregation, Spurgeon turned at the end to any unbelievers who were present, and this is what he said to them. Before I dismiss you, there is this one other sentence. You that love not Christ, remember that you are the most miserable people 
in the world. Though you may think yourselves happy, there is no one of us that would change places with the best of you. When we are very sick, very poor, and on the borders of the grave, if you were to step in and say to us, Come, I will change places with you. You shall have my gold and my silver, my riches and my health and the like. There is not one living Christian that would change places with you. We would not stop to deliberate. We would give you at once our answer. No, go your way and delight in what you have. But all your treasures are transient. They will soon pass away. We will keep our sufferings and you shall keep your gaudy toys. Saints have no hell, but what they suffer here on earth. Sinners will have no heaven, but what they have here in this poor, troublesome world. We have our sufferings here and our glory afterwards. You may have your glory here, but you will have your sufferings forever and ever. God grant you new hearts and right spirits, a living faith and a living Jesus. And then I would say to you, as I've said to the rest, man, in whatsoever state you are, be content. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.